You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan. In Stouffville. In Woodbridge. In Unionville. This is the feed on 1059 The Region. I'm Ann Romer with York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. On the show, a preview of the Grammy Awards, including a few predictions from our marvelous melodic music team, a new program to bring South Asian arts to young people, and we learn more about Lyme disease after Justin Bieber reveals he is battling it. We begin, though, with the growing concern surrounding the coronavirus. The city of Wuhan in central China, which is home to 11 million people, is essentially in lockdown, as are at least 10 other cities. This is where a new coronavirus began. 26 people have died so far. Hundreds are sick with this pneumonia-like illness. There are now two confirmed cases in the United States. But let's begin with the facts. Tina Cortez starts us off. Dr. Farin Karachiwala is the Associate Medical Officer of Health for York Region. Doctor, can we begin with some of the basics? What exactly is coronavirus? Sure, and thank you so much for having me. So, um, you know, there's lots have been about this in the media, um, and we know, I just want to let everybody know that coronaviruses and what they are, so it is a large family of viruses or lots of different types of them. Um, we tend to see them very commonly in the winter months, and they're often responsible for causing the common cold, um, symptoms like cough, shortness of breath, runny nose, things like that. Um, but there is a wide spectrum, so you might also know that things like MERS-CoV or SARS are also forms of coronavirus. Um, what we're seeing now is a novel coronavirus, uh, meaning that, you know, it's not been seen in human populations before. And so a lot of information on it is still emerging and, and coming out. And so I guess that is the scary part about this, is that it seems to be mutating and changing as it goes. Is that correct? Well, that information is, is still emerging. Um, I think, you know, in this situation, what we know is that on December 31st, the Chinese authorities did report an outbreak of this novel coronavirus. Um, and very remarkably, within about a week or 10 days, they had actually sequenced the entire, um, you know, DNA of this and figured out what it was very quickly. So that's really good news. Um, information on it is changing, and, you know, as we get updated numbers and case counts, and that's actually a very good thing because it means we're learning more and more every day about it. So it in itself, there's more info being um, discovered, but it's not that the virus itself is mutating rapidly or there's no indication of that right now. Now, China has confirmed there has been human-to-human transmission. What does that mean? Why is that unique? And, and how actually is it transmitted to humans? Yeah, so those are great questions. Um, we expect with most coronaviruses that they are um, passed human to human. So what that means is like things like the flu or influenza or the common cold, it can be spread through droplet or contact. So that means if someone sneezes or coughs and, you know, you're very close to them and you get it in your mucous membranes like your eyes or your mouth, or even if you touch a surface that's contaminated and then touch your face, it can spread that way. So that's the general coronaviruses and a lot of respiratory illnesses, like I said, the common cold and flu, that's how they're spread between people. In this situation, 
um, you know, a lot of cases were actually linked to a seafood market. And so the thought is it actually came from animals and got passed on to humans that way. Now there's starting to be some thought of spread um, between very close contacts. So maybe it's people who live with you or a healthcare worker. Um, so more information on this is still to be determined. I think people know it does spread between people, which is not surprising because lots of these respiratory viruses spread that way. I think the question that still is to be determined, and info will keep coming up about this, is how easily it's spread beyond people, you know? So is it like you are just sharing a room with people, but right now there's no indication of that. It's very close contact. Um, but that whole piece around uh, how easily it spreads is something that's still being figured out. Now, there's screening happening at airports right here in Canada, inclus- including Pearson Airport. What does that screening involve? Yeah, so um, at the airports in Canada, and I should say that the decisions around screening and international travel are um, decisions made by the federal government, so it's the Public Health Agency of Canada, and they have decided at this time to screen passengers coming through at three various airports. And what they're doing is asking people you know, do have you traveled to Wuhan, China specifically, and are you feeling any symptoms? So the idea here is really to pick up people that might be sick and have traveled to the affected area so that they can then get some information, be referred to um, officers who would then assess them for different healthcare needs and transport them if required to various hospitals. So the idea is really to pick up folks that are coming in internationally that might have both symptoms and have traveled to the affected area. So how much of a threat is this? How does it compare to SARS and should we be worried right here in York Region? Yeah, so I want to start out by saying that so far there have not been any Canadian confirmed cases and the risk, you know, to York Region residents remains low. Um, I think people are definitely comparing this to SARS. You know, it's fresh in folks' mind. Um, but I think there's some really important things to note about SARS compared to this. So one of the first things, which I talked about a little bit earlier, is that in this situation, um, there is a lot known at a very quick pace. So like I said, the Chinese authorities had the tests ready to go, they had means to detect the virus, all within a couple of weeks or so of reporting that initial cluster, which is pretty remarkable. Um, The other thing is all of that in SARS time was completely unknown as there were Canadian cases happening. Like I said, to date there have not been Canadian cases and so much is known and so the health system is prepared, they're aware, we're communicating with our local partners including healthcare providers and hospitals to make sure everyone is aware, is sharing info um, and knows what to do in case anyone comes through the door with travel history and assessment. So we're working very closely with them and that preparedness is very solid. And is there anything that we should be doing on a daily basis just to stay healthy, especially during this time of year? Yeah, absolutely. And and that's a really important point is we are in flu season. There's respiratory viruses circulating. And so we really do encourage people to do what they can. So that would include things like if you are feeling sick, to stay home, you know, don't go to work. Um, The other thing is wash your hands very regularly. It's really important. Um, It's not too late to get the flu shot, so we do encourage people to still get that because even if you do get the flu, it really reduces your risk of having serious complications. Um, 
be very mindful of just environmental cleaning, you know, wiping things, washing your hands lots, um, and definitely respiratory etiquette. So if you are coughing or sneezing, to do that into your sleeve and your elbow. And those are really important measures that people can take to stay safe this time of year. Doctor, if our listeners want more information, where can they go? Definitely. So you can check out our website, and it's at York, <clears throat> york.ca slash coronavirus. We have a lot of up-to-date information on there, uh, including some frequently asked questions. Dr. Karachi Walla, thank you for joining us on the feed. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. With the latest on the coronavirus from the World Health Organization, go to who.int. And next on the feed, we say hello to Dr. Neil Rao, infectious diseases specialist and medical microbiologist. Thank you for joining us on the feed. The coronavirus, how did it get started? We don't quite know. There's a lot of theories that this has come from an animal market, a seafood market to be precise, but now there's a snake theory as well. What we can say is that the initial outbreak was identified in people who had been to some live animal market in Wuhan, China. And then what's happened is that there has been spread to close contacts of those who had acquired the infection that way. And now we're also seeing some cases in people who have nothing to do with the seafood market. Good news, though, is that we're not seeing the next generation of spread where it's the person who has it, then their family member gets it, and then that person in turn gives it to somebody else who keeps giving it to somebody else. We don't have those sort of multiple generations or chains of spread so far. So if it is animal to human and now human to human, how common is that for that sequence of events? Um, We don't know. I think most of what we're now seeing is actually human to human spread rather than animal to human. They initially started with animal to human. It's taking a bit of a life of its own, but it's not being found in people who have no connection to Wuhan. So every case that's been found all over the world, including today's most recent case in the U.S., is in someone who had been in Wuhan. We're not having people come down with it in other parts of China who have nothing to do with a Wuhan connection. Let's talk about the incubation period. What do we know about that? Don't know for sure, for sure, but based on the experience with other coronaviruses of this nature, which includes SARS and the Middle Eastern one called MERS, up to 14 days seems to be the outer limit. So 14 days after, if you're not sick and you've had this exposure, you don't have MERS. The symptoms, uh, they seem similar to a flu or, or a cold. Can you expand on the symptoms that are aligned with this coronavirus? Okay, so it's a little bit all over the map. There was a paper that just came out in The Lancet today which described the sicker patients with it. Those people seem to have what we call lower respiratory attack symptoms, meaning cough and shortness of breath, and not so much what we call the upper symptoms like sore throat, runny nose, sneezing. On the other hand, there's another Lancet article which described a household cluster of people with very mild disease, and some of them did have more of the upper respiratory tract symptoms. We also don't know how contagious people are at different phases of the disease. If this is like the SARS and the MERS story, people who are more sick with the severe form of the disease are more contagious, while people with the mild form of the disease are not very contagious. That's actually good news from a community spread perspective, because if you have people who aren't sick, who don't go to the doctor, and who have a mild form of the disease, it's hard for them to spread the virus 
because they're not that contagious, and it won't pick up so much steam as a community-based outbreak. And how are medical practitioners treating this virus? It's what we call supportive care. So if someone is really sick, there's no specific antivirus medication that can be given unlike what we can do with the flu. But these patients would be supported. If they got really sick, they'd be put in an intensive care unit, put on a breathing machine, various things done to kind of help their fluid balances. And it's all called supportive care, but it's not really specific to the virus. You ride it through, but if your breathing were really compromised by giving, uh, putting someone on a breathing machine and giving them oxygen, you can actually get them through the rough ride and get them out. Why, in some cases, is this fatal? Again, an unknown, but it seems it may be the host's response to the virus rather than the virus multiplying and gobbling up the lung. So some people may react to the virus differently. It's a new virus that they've not seen before. Their immune system goes wild when it's in their respiratory tree, respiratory tract. And then what's happening is at the lung level, at the microscope level, the alveoli where your air exchange occurs between your blood and the oxygen in the air is compromised because your body is reacting so much it's flooding those alveoli with, the, with your response and it blocks the transport of gases and then your lungs don't work properly and that's how you can end up dying. Dr. Rao, what do you think of the response right now from China, for instance? Uh, we've got uh, many, many cities in lockdown. There are now travel restrictions. There are protocols in place in international airports around the world uh, in order to try to deal with this. Uh, and we also are just waiting to hear more from the WHO when they perhaps make their decision to declare this a global emergency. What do you think of the response so far? So the one response I commend is the WHO for saying we need more information. And it may seem insensitive that they didn't do anything because after all, look what China's doing. But they're looking at it from 30,000 feet above and saying, hey, wait a minute, we need more data. This may not be as scary as we all think. It might be much more widespread and not actually as dangerous as we all think. And to call it a global emergency, there are other criteria that have to be met. It hasn't really spread easily person to person and end up being a global and it's not ended up being a global threat. It's really found abroad in people who still have a connection back to China. As for what the Chinese are doing, it's never been tried before. It's incredibly drastic. It is not a liberal democracy. They don't take criticism terribly well. If the WHO were to tell them, you guys are nuts, you're going over the top, they're just going to be kicked out of the country on the next flight to Geneva. So they have to walk a very fine tightrope and endorse the Chinese zeal to bring this under control. The reason the Chinese response is overkill, in my view, is that if it doesn't spread that easily person to person, you don't have to lock down the entire city. If it does spread really easily person to person, the genie is out of the bottle. There's no point. It's ultimately going to get out. You might slow it down a little bit. It's still going to ultimately end up elsewhere. And it's just high drama. It's political theater. The last thing is the Chinese are putting themselves... Under the microscope of the world, they're putting, they're creating a spectacle. It's actually going to harm their economy. They're going to go through what we went through in the entire country of Canada, even though we had an outbreak only in northeastern Toronto in a few hospitals with SARS. So the spectacle that's created is going to have more negative effects, too. I think this is one of the reasons why the WHO didn't want to declare an emergency, because they know there are huge economic negative impact factors that occur when you do that. Is it, in your opinion, just a matter of time before a case uh 
is known here in Canada? Yes, I think we will probably see one. But look, the U.S. has 10 times the population and they see only two. So when the U.S. gets to 10 or something cases, maybe we'll see one just looking at proportion of population. You also have to look at where people are flying. There are more people directly connected to Wuhan in the U.S. than there are to Canada. Canada has more connections with Hong Kong and with other parts of China. So we may get a case, but it doesn't mean it's out of control because we have really good defense systems in our hospitals now to prevent further spread of this, even if someone shows up with a severe form of the illness. It would be high drama. It would be a news story for sure. But I don't think we're going to see SARS, the sequel, here. Dr. Neil Rao, preparedness or panic? Which way do you think it's going to go? There's definitely panic on the part of the general population who sees the images of China. I think there's prudence on the part of the way the Canadian health authorities are reacting and even in our province, the way people are reacting. So I think that's to be commended because I have criticized overreactions in the past. I think we're getting it right this time. And especially the WHO, you know, not bowing to pressure with such media attention and and concern. Dr. Neil Rao, infectious diseases specialist and medical microbiologist, thank you for joining us on the feed. Thanks for inviting me again. And we'll stay on the health beat. Next on the feed, we learn more about Lyme disease following Justin Bieber's revelation about his secret health battle. Jim Lang with that story. Lyme disease is no joke. It's serious business. And as we've seen with Justin Bieber and other celebrities like Avril Lavigne and Shania Twain, it can be very, very serious. And with my wife's a friend, it can be lethal. They'll talk more about Lyme disease and why it is such a serious affliction in North America in 2020. Thrilled to be talking to the author of The Lyme Disease Cure, Dr. Cass Ingram. Doctor, thank you for joining us. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. Yeah, I know you told me off the air about your uh, your friend and how she died and was in a wheelchair. That's The Lyme is that spirochete. There are other germs and ticks, but the Lyme spirochete's a corkscrew pathogen. And that's it's like a biological agent. Your immune system doesn't do anything. It burrows into the brain, the spinal cord, the joint, the serous fluid there, the cartilage. It'll go into the, those areas, the skin, and, and eat that tissue. And eventually it destroys the brain and some people, and, and you die. Uh, and the heart, uh, cardiac Lyme, you see. Let me tell you something. Yes. About uh, 20 years ago, I was fishing in uh, northwest Ontario. And nobody thought there was any lime in Canada. So I did a lot of berry picking, a lot of messing around on the islands. And I, I came home. Nobody knew about lime about 25 years ago. And I couldn't move. In two weeks, I just laid in bed, and my knee swelled up, was painful. I couldn't do anything. I imagine I must have gotten it then. I must have fought it off. But I got a hardcore case of lime. That's why I wrote the book uh, about 10 years ago, doing my more research in the wilderness. Hardcore with the bullseye rash. Ended up in wheelchair. Ended up with the, in the brain, you know, 40% fatal, and I beat it. <laughs> I got out of the wheelchair, got, you know, no more crutches, no more disability. I beat the living daylights out of it. It was not easy, and that's what I, when I wrote the book, uh, The Lyme Disease Cure. Uh, didn't take the antibiotics, uh, just did it naturally. It's amazing, and, and what you're describing is something that Justin Bieber alluded to, that he was in a mental fog while he fought the disease because of what it does to the human brain, I would imagine, doctor. Right, you know, the spirochete even um, causes cheese, uh, Swiss cheese lesions in the brain. And there could be trillions, billions and trillions of those pathogens there. And if, if you don't do something, uh, you could, it could kill you. But uh, 
All we have are the antibiotics from medicine, but now with the natural, we have a tremendous uh, pharmacy we could be using. I don't know if you know this, but the, the, the kingpin for Lyme isn't antibiotics. It's actually uh, oil of wild oregano. Oh. Oh, yeah. I use that when I'm yeah. filling stuffed up. Yeah. Oil of wild oregano, we did the original research about, nine, about 2003, uh, completely destroys the spiral keep. We only found that oil of cumin, cinnamon, also did it, sage. And, uh, and it completely, completely obliterates the, the germ. And then with time, in the deeper tissues, it'll get them out in the brain or the joints. It takes time, though. And we were using the P73, the original wild oregano oil that started the industry in Canada, et cetera, we're using a lot of that, uh, that, that edible wild oregano oil, and we're using as much as a bottle a day hmm. <laughs> to get it out. You know how strong it is. As, yeah. as Canadians or people who live in the northeast U.S., they'd like to be outside when the weather's nice because winter's so rough. So when spring, summer falls around, people will spend great amounts of time outside in the wilderness, in the woods, around the lakes, especially in their cargo shorts and T-shirts when it's warm. But how can they prevent getting bit by a tick when they're enjoying the great outdoors and the nice weather? Not anymore, Canadians. You have to wear the long cotton uh, pants, no shorts, and put your socks over the pant legs. Gosh, you know, you just got to do it. It's, it's all over Canada. Nobody can say otherwise. People are getting the you know, disease. Um, yeah, you're going to have to protect. They're too, t- they're too tiny. You can't see them. Hmm. Now, I use the Protec-X, the, the spray, the herbal spray with the geranium, the juniper, cumin, oregano, and sage and all that. I use the herbal Protec-X, and I spray nowadays my shoes, my socks, my pants, and any exposed parts, and I spray the underside of the dog or the cat, and I'm getting about 98% no ticks on. Just, so that's a good start, plus the clothing ideas. If you go home, you strip all your clothing off and you throw it in the dryer for an hour and a half. That also reduces the risk, you see. Oh. It'll, the dryer will fill them. Yeah, not the washer. You can wash them later. Yeah, those are three tips. The clothing, the Protect-X. Here's a fourth one. How about if you get some of that edible high, high-grade oil of oregano, get the super strength, and start taking it every day during the, during the uh, spring because the ticks hate it. They tend not to come to you. Or they might come to you and not bite if that oregano oil has been, you know, something you're using. It's, it, it's not 100%, but, you know, how about 60%, 70%? Well, doctor, you uh, mentioned Ontario and other parts of Canada. Are there other parts of North America that we should be aware of when we're outside that could be susceptible to ticks carrying Lyme disease? Well, I, I mean, Ontario and Manitoba are pretty bad. Uh, British Columbia has its issues. But it's that center that the highest risk. Uh, Ontario, we're seeing more cases. Manitoba, a fair amount. And, uh, you know, so pretty much all the provinces, not so much New Brunswick. I was in the bush with some guys for, gosh, a couple weeks there. They're not seeing it as much there. But it's, you know, it's, don't take the risk. You know, use that spray, you know, try to take that oil of oregano. What if you do get Lyme? Here's the protocol. Oil of wild oregano. Go to Nature's Emporium and talk to Teresa. She knows about my work. You know, go to uh, uh, go to the Good Health Martin Woodbridge and talk to them. The oil of wild oregano super strength, the Arega Rest, and the Oregano Juice. Actually, those that, those three are the protocol. And use the spray. I wish I could tell you there are any drugs, but all we have are, are doxycycline. You can only use them for so long. And uh, then the side effect is the yeast and fungus and all that. Um, so I don't use them. Speaking with Dr. Cassie Ingram, author of The Lyme Disease Cure, um, 
say you get home from being out in the woods or being on vacation or being camping in those first 24, 48 hours, uh, is there a sign you should look for thinking, oh, something's not right. I need to get help here. Yeah, if you, you can, within 24 or 48 hours, just feel sick. And how are you going to feel sick in the spring or the summer unless it's a tick? Hmm. And just not feel right and not feel normal. You could have some itchiness of the skin or some inflammation, and you should look for the bullseye or you know, smaller uh, rash or what have you. Uh, but, I mean, it's, you can't see the tick. You're not going to find it necessarily on you. If you inspect yourself well, yeah, maybe you'll, you'll pick it up. Take a shower real good, uh, scrubbing and so on. But, I mean, the biggest thing we found is if you take the clothes off when you come home, you throw them in the dryer because they linger, and then hmm. they come and crawl on you at night. Or the dog. It'll come off the dog and come to you. If you Don't ever sleep with your dog now. No, no. Dog, you know, 50% of the lime is coming from the dogs. Now, but what uh, do dogs go lame and get sick as well? You, know? uh, you had mentioned so, that Lyme sometimes is misdiagnosed. W- what is it often viewed as by medical professionals well, or others? This is the problem. Only one in ten cases are picked up. Well done. Uh, MS, Parkinson's, tremor, epilepsy, Bell's palsy, PMJ, arthritis, inflammation, fibromyalgia, cardiac rhythm disturbances, uh, you know, neurological paralysis, Epstein-Barr, I mean, what not Epstein-Barr, uh, Guillain-Barre. So how are you, you know medicine's going to go more towards those standard diagnoses. Mm-hmm. There's not many, and what are you going to say? Let me do a hundred one Lyme test, and I think I suspect you got sick in the spring, you got sick in the fall, uh, summer. You were outdoors. Nobody's going to take that kind of a history. Uh, so you got it's up. You're up against it if you've got the symptoms. The doctor, it's, the medical. it's 2020. We have such advanced medical science in North America. Why? Why is it such a struggle to diagnose Lyme disease? Because the medical profession has also rejected it and said, oh, no, uh, we don't have it, it's not in Canada, or, or no, you don't have the Lyme, or no, it's not that common. This sort of arrogance, uh, ineptitude, really, instead of looking at the statistics, which the CDC is conservative, they're telling you a half a million cases, new cases every year. Half a million is a lot, by the way. Mm. Uh, my statistics, three to five million new cases in North America a year. I don't know why they're not. I mean, if you took a history and somebody got a swollen joint and, and never got injured or was real sick and fluish and had a funny rash or something, and it's happening in the summer, wouldn't you think ticks? I mean, it's, yeah. what else is it going to be? No, it's a, I don't understand. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great point. Um, I think a lot of listeners are fascinated. How can they order the book, The Lyme Disease Cure, that you've written? And I think a lot of people want to learn more about the healing power of these wild oils and spices. Lyme disease cure and the cure is in the cupboard. Maybe check with the Nature's Emporium and the other local mom and pa's, but check kazingram.com. Don't pay scalper prices. Some of my books go for $500. They're only $20, okay? Uh, $25. Kazingram.com. Uh, check that out. And also for knowledge, oregano.com. That way you know what I'm talking about for protocol, you know. Doctor, you've taught us a lot today. I really appreciate taking the time, especially as we're getting towards spring. Eventually, people need to be prepared when all the snow. Oh yeah, yeah. No, if if we could save a person with this, uh, it'd be huge and spread the word. Wild oregano, we proved, and Johns Hopkins too, that destroys the Lyme spirochete. P73 edible, you can take aggressively. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you, doctor. I really appreciate this.
I'm Ann Romer. You're listening to The Feed on 105.9 The Region. If you missed any part of our show, go to 1059theregion.com for a replay. Now, in case there was any doubt, yes, we are in the midst of award season. Over now to our own triple threat with a preview of the Grammy Awards. I'm Amber Pay, host of Afternoons with Amber. I am joined by Christina Lavecchia, who is our music coordinator here at 105.9 Region. Hi. And the host of Shaliza Weekends, Shaliza Backus. Hey. Also part of Afternoons with Amber. And we kind of got together and said, we want to talk Grammys. Mm-hmm. And we have been overwhelmed by awards. And this is the awards season. And a lot of people are really excited about Super it. Super exciting. Super exciting. We've had the AMA Awards already for music. We have had the Gold Golden Globes, we've had the SAG Awards, and now we're going back to music this weekend, uh, tomorrow night with the Grammy Awards. It's going to be held in L.A., the Staples Center. You can watch it on CBS. And first and foremost, we want to talk about the incredible host, Alicia Keys. This is her second year in a role hosting, so I'm, I'm super excited to see her again on stage. I enjoy her. There was a point in time where she said, no more makeup, right? Yep. She says, this is me. She's a natural beauty. She so is, she I know. Any. She doesn't <laughs> need it. This is my talent. Let's look at the talent and go from that. So mm-hmm. I do believe she's one of the most talented people. And uh, obviously she did a great job because they are going to have her back. Also for the Grammys, uh, they are going to uh, be inducting Aerosmith into the, the Music Cares Person of the Year. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you get? I don't think you get inducted or not, but Music Cares Person of the Year is actually a group, Aerosmith, and uh, Steven Tyler obviously leading at the front, and they've had a very long career. Long. 50 years. 50 years. And 50. <laughs> that hurts my head. <laughs> because I look at them and think, and just like I think of the Stones, they have been around a really, really long time, mm-hmm. and they still can move. They still got it. They still got it. <laughs> they still got it. I mean, obviously, I think I think they probably travel with a lot of uh, massage therapists now, and they eat better now. They probably don't drink as much as they used to, and probably stopped using drugs, if I recall correctly, in uh, an autobiography that I read. Like many bands, they go through all of their ups and downs, mm-hmm. and a lot of that had to do with drug use. So hopefully, everybody is clean, and obviously, they're still here, and they can still keep going. So, good for them. So, Nominees. Which which are the ones that we are focusing on here, the nominees? The big four. There's Record of the Year, Song of the Year, Album of the Year, and Best New Artist. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Album of the Year and Record of the Year are different. Yes. That, to me, that means they're the same. I don't know if it's from where I came from, but Shalise was looking at me like, yeah, I got the answer here. <laughs> so it's actually Record of the Year and Song of the Year that people actually get confused with. Uh, why am I getting confused with Album of the Year? And album of the Year is the album on the whole, but Record of the Year and Song of the Year are both single songs. Okay. Uh, Record of the Year is more of a technical award. It's re- it's awarded to producer, artist, uh, technical producer, all of that those things. And then Song of the Year is a lot more based on performance. Am I correct, Christina? So Song of the Year is more deals with the composition of the song. So the songwriters and okay, okay, okay. So for Record of the Year, with all of the technical aspects, uh, who do we have here? Billie Eilish for Bad Guy and Ariana Grande for Seven Rings, which. Might be a debatable thing it now because be. the the rumor is 
that she may have stolen part of that song. So we have to wait for that as well. So I don't, I'm not putting her in as a shoe in. Yeah, I don't think I don't think Seven Rings can actually win Record of the Year. Okay, so the other people that we have here are Khaled for Talk and Her. Do we call her Her or H-E-R? Yeah, her. Her. We call her Her. For Hard Place at Lizzo, Truth Hurts, and Post Malone along with Sway Lee for Sunflower. Mm-hmm. And Hema Bon Iver. I'm going to guess Bad Guy Billie Eilish. Yeah. Um, I think I'm going to get, I don't know. I, I really want Khalid to take this home just because I really love him as an artist. But I think Bonnie Iver has a good chance at winning as well. Am I saying all these people's names wrong? I think so. Okay. <laughs> Bonnie Iver, why don't you tell me this before we I, start I'm recording? sorry. I'm sorry. Bonnie Iver and I said, okay, there's DJ Khaled and I, this yeah, is Khalid. This is Khalid. Mm-hmm. Boy, yeah. I'm so glad I have you ladies here with me. <laughs> so, I, yeah, I do. I think for record of the year, I think Billie Eilish will be... So I'm going to make this different as well. Old Town Road, I think, is one that's excellent. Yeah. All the stuff. Okay. Yeah. So then let's talk song of the year. And this is basically about the songwriting. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know. Taylor Swift is in there, too. Lover. Uh, Billie Eilish with Bad Guy. I'm still going to go with Billie Eilish because there is always... Uh, always remember us this way, Lady Gaga. I don't even know that song. Me neither. Okay. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. Out. Bring My Flowers Now, Tanya Tucker. I don't know that song either, but she is she's going to be performing. Truth Hurts, Lizzo. Someone You Love. There you go. Yeah. You really like Louis I, Capaldi. I do. I do. I think that's a really great song. And if we're looking at Song of the Year, I think it's a very well-written song as well. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to go with Bad Guy, too. And it's it's written with her brother, so that that would be a nice Oh, that's sweet. Yeah. I think that, you see, I'm a big Billie Eilish fan, too. So now I'm looking at Best New Artist, and I'm looking at Black Pumas and Billie Eilish and Lil Nas X and Lizzo and Maggie Rogers, uh, Rosalia, Tank and the Bangas, and Yola. I'm going to say Billie Eilish mm-hmm. over Lizzo, and I love love Lizzo. Maybe somebody's going to get mad at me for saying this, but I think Lizzo is really hot now. I'm I'm more concerned about the, uh, the longevity, the longevity yep. and the stability of Lizzo's mm-hmm. career. Even though it's amazing and I love it and I love everything she has to offer and hers is my favorite performance that I'm looking forward yeah. to. Mm-hmm. I think Billie Eilish is more of a shoe in for this one. Album of the year, uh, we have Bonnie Vare. There you go. <laughs> there, Lana Del Rey, Billie Eilish, uh, Ariana Grande, her and Lil mm-hmm. Nas X. Also Lizzo and Vampire Weekend. Mm-hmm. I think I'm going to go with Billie Eilish with this again. Um, although this is her debut album, the past has kind of shown that debut albums do have a chance kind of in this category. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1999, Lauryn Hill got this award with Miss Education of Lauryn Hill. And in 2003, Nora Jones with her debut right. album, Come Away With Me. So we've seen kind of in the past that th- this is possible with a mm-hmm. debut album. Now, I'll be honest, the only two albums that I've actually listened to every song from are Thank You Next by Ariana Grande and I Used to Know Her by Her. And they're both great albums, but Her, she is a fabulous songwriter and performer and I've seen her live I saw her at Coachella last year and she she's just her music just I feel like it really speaks to a lot of people so I think she's very well deserving of this award because I'm not familiar with it I would consider that in the world of music as an upset Is it could be it could be but then again, I, again, I go with Billie Eilish because I'm not familiar with a lot of the people here. Maybe that is just me being a little bit on the ignorant side. I don't mean that as a as a. a well, that's okay. I mean, there is so much music in the world; mm-hmm. it's hard to really take it all in. And I think that's the great thing about the Grammys is it really opens us up to all the great music of the year. Exactly. That even if we missed out on it, we have a chance now. Mm-hmm. So we'll have to see. We have so much to look forward to. The Grammys mm-hmm. on Sunday night as we look ahead. 
And I think it's going to be a whole lot of fun. And I look forward to seeing who's so winning. And I'll be tweeting that yep. night. Great. So um, if anybody wants to follow along with me. and You just, know I will be. There you go. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> and our Twitter handle is at 105.9 The Region. Christina's going to be tweeting. Shaliza's going to be chiming Always. in. You never know. I might make an appearance. We'll have to stay up past her bedtime, guys. Honestly, you know what? Talk to Amber. Lisa Backus does not lie. She knows I'm I'm an early to bed person. So great. We're really looking forward to it. Thank you all for joining us here on 105.9 The Region. The feet. Listening to the feed on 1059 The Region, I'm Ann Romer. Our next stop takes us to the Monster Arts. Afuaba explains. Joining me to chat today about the Monster Arts for Youth program is the Executive Director, Vikas Kohli. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thanks for having me. This is, uh, it's wonderful to be able to talk about this on the radio. Oh, it's our pleasure. So, for those that may not know, if you can talk to me a little bit about the, uh, the program, Monster Arts for Youth. Yeah, so the the Monster Arts for Youth program, uh, we started uh, quite a number of years ago, and it's grown and grown and grown. Uh, it's this amazing program where we help uh, send professional artists into schools all over the GTA, so Mississauga, Brampton, Caledon, York Region, Scarborough, you, you name it, everywhere across the GTA, uh, teachers can call and uh, request for professional artists to come into the class, and what the professional artist does is they teach South Asian arts to the entire school uh, or the entire class. We can do class-by-class or school-by-school workshops. And the idea here is to really build a sense of understanding between all the students. Uh, we all like going out and dancing or drawing or painting uh, to relieve stress and to have fun in our lives. And so we want to bring that to the kids at this professional level And they learn about other people's cultures, but at the same time get that same stress relief we all get from, from, you know, the same way your listeners are turning on the radio, listening to music, uh, you know, on their way to work or doing their uh, chores at home. It it makes everyone feel better. and, and, And that's what really brings the kids together. Awesome. That is such uh, such great news to hear about what's going on. And of course, the arts, I think those two things coming together is such a great collaboration. If you can talk to me about um, how this idea sort of came about in terms of merging the arts with helping young people dealing with mental health issues. You know, it's, it's interesting because our first objective with the program was just to provide uh, the, the arts in the schools to help um, kids understand each other's culture. That was the, the, the start of the program. And uh, so it, was, it already had this wonderful quality where if you can imagine you, you, you're in grade school or you're in high school and you know that, you know, maybe you're, your friend is going to get married uh, and, and you don't know what to do uh, at the Bollywood dance. And so, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so this is like, uh, it started with this idea of like, let's just get everyone comfortable and talking to each other. And so that, you know, the same way uh, we would say people can... You know, it doesn't matter what your background is. You're going to enjoy eating a pizza as much as you're going to enjoy eating a samosa. So we thought, let's take that same mentality towards the arts and bring that in the school. And then over time, what we realized was the really amazing impact this was having on people. We would hear stories from teachers about uh, kids, for instance, that may be so shy in the classroom that they've never spoken, uh, you know, in public or anything like that. They're just in a shell. But then uh, maybe a visual arts workshop comes into the school or a dance workshop comes in or a music workshop comes and the kid just 
lights up, opens up, comes out of their shell, and is all of a sudden active. And that's when we realized, oh, you know, we should really be looking into what this means to the kids on this, on this greater level. We, we based a lot of our um, program design by looking at research from places like the Ontario Arts Council and also the CAMH has several studies that show that, you know, how art really does reduce stress, improves mental outcomes for people. And let's face it, we all have stress. Day by day, we have stress and we all relieve it by going to the arts. You are absolutely right. Okay, so then with the young folks, how do then we get this into schools? Schools can contact us at monsterartsforyouth.com, the website, uh, and then they can get all the information to reach us and then uh, book uh, workshops. And right now we are doing a promo for schools so that um, the workshops are subsidized. But on top of the subsidy, we also are running a special uh, to really encourage more workshops to happen. Uh, if teachers are able to book before January 31st, then there's, a, there's an even greater discount. And they can also win free workshops for some of their colleagues as well. Uh, so it's kind of a pay-it-forward type program that we're, we're going for right now. And really, if anybody is interested in these types of workshops, the artists can go into community centers. We've done workshops with boys and girls clubs. We've done workshops with libraries, art galleries. So many places really love and enjoy these workshops. I would encourage people, go to monsterartsforyouth.com, and you can see pictures and video of the workshops in action. And it's, it's really quite beautiful to see these kids having so much fun. We're here for the community and, uh, you know, we're an artist-led not-for-profit and we really love what we do and we're so happy that the community has responded so amazing to these programs. So anyone who's interested in the program, please go to monsterartsforyouth.com. You can Google it, you can find us on Facebook and all the information for the workshops and all the different things we offer is all on the website. Perfect. All right, Vikas, thank you so much and all the best for this uh, 2020 year. Thank you so much. I'm Ann Romer. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. Next, we hit the ice with the Vaughn Kings. One of the top minor hockey teams in New York Region and the GTA is the Bantam Vaughn Kings. Thrilled to be talking to their coach, Peter Sarno, on The Feed. Peter, how are you? I'm good, Tim. How are you doing today? Uh, good. I mean, before we get to some of your hockey background, you're dealing with 05s, kids in the cusp becoming really big teenagers. But we, we forget Bantam kids, 14-year-old kids now, playing elite AAA hockey in the region, the GTHL and the GTA. They're big kids, and they're, they're quite a – they're athletes you really have to work with right now, isn't it? You know what, Jim? It's, uh, the game's really changed. A lot of these kids, uh, you get them, and, and, and they're a lot bigger than me now. And, and then you see the development from, from getting them when they were uh, babies, really, at 8, 9 years old, and seeing them now grow into mature young men and, and, and uh, essentially a year away from being drafted. And it's a real thrill to be part of uh, such a talented – group of young men that uh, are somewhat successful right now and uh, have a bright future ahead of them. Peter, for a lot of coaches in that age group, they find it difficult sometimes as kids become a little more independent, want to talk back. How have you find the discipline of the bench in the dressing room and their attention to detail and practicing games working with you as you guys work through the season? You know what? I've been pretty fortunate to have a great group of kids where I think there's a respect factor given with my hockey background that, uh, you know, they respect where I'm coming from. They respect the discipline. They respect what we're trying to teach and the values that as long as it's amongst the entire team, uh, you know, it's been really good. And I have a really good group of 16 young men that uh, all buy in and, and uh, do a good job of that. 
as a for a coach, as much as you like to win and be successful, is part of the pride factor and the feel good factor for you is to see these young kids emerge and, and I guess mature throughout the season on the ice and off the ice. I think the biggest thing for minor hockey league coach. I mean, everyone loves to win. It's it's obviously a great feeling to win and be champion. But at the end of the day, minor hockey is is to develop kids to hopefully get to the next level. And that's, that's our first and foremost job is to, is to get kids at the next level. I was fortunate enough to do other age groups where I've coached Quinn Hughes and, and now he's, you know, a top elite defenseman that I really take pride that say, I knew that kid when he was 13, 14 and, and now he's an NHL all-star defenseman kind of thing. So that's, that's my primary goal when, when taking on, uh, jobs of minor hockey. I, I think you're being a little bit too modest, Peter. I mean, you, you were in the Quebec Pee Wee tournament. Um, you played for the Marlies in the GTHL. You had a long pro career, spent some time in the NHL and AHL. When you think about your time playing elite minor hockey in the early mid nineties, how different are 14 year old kids now skill level wise than when you played? You know what? I, I think the games obviously changed, uh, tenfold and way more skilled, uh, faster, bigger. Uh, when I played, there wasn't the, the technology with the sticks. Uh, with the HB off-ice programs that they have nowadays. I mean, some of these men, they're, they're 14, 15, and, 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 and they're, they're, you would think they're 25, the way they're built, the way they're conditioned, the way they shoot the puck. It's just, uh, the game's really changed, and, uh, hence why we see it as great as it is today now. The Vaughn Kings, it's got a long history. I mean, you look at some of the, the players that have come out of there, Andrew Cogliano, and on and on it goes, and, and Mitch Marner. I mean, it's produced a lot of great young hockey players. You know what, Vaughn, over the years, uh, I give I give the Ciccolini family, Aldoria, and the Ionetta family, the, the owners and the presidents of the organization, the, the biggest credit. They've, they've done a really good job of hiring uh, good young coaches like myself and, and all the other age groups to, to really take pride in, in what they do and, and, and being now I believe they're top three in the organization standings in the GTHL in terms of standings. And, uh, you know, again, getting kids to the next level is what this is about. And uh, I know they take a big pride in doing that. You had a long pro career. You played in the NHL, the AHL. You played in Europe. Um, were there some highlights along the way, Peter, that, that, I mean, you're so busy now doing what you're doing, but you take pride in during your playing career? You know what? The first, obviously, the one thing that stands out was scoring my uh, first NHL goal in my first NHL game. That's the memory that I hold dear in my basement with the plaque and the puck that I got from Edmonton, and it's uh, an experience that I'll never forget. Uh, I have three young kids now that, unfortunately, didn't get to see me play. Uh, they weren't born, but you know, my oldest son, who's 11 now, Luca, he comes in the basement at time to time, and he's playing with his stick, and and he asks me about the goal, and and he tries YouTubing me and, and seeing highlights, so. For me, that was the biggest uh, thing to achieve my goal to play, uh, you know, in the NHL and obviously scoring my first goal. Okay, tell us about the goal and what goalie did you beat? Uh, it was against Montreal. It was in my very first game. Uh, it was against uh, Sebastian Jaguer. I recall it being a three-on-two and I being the trailer, and I remember there was a shot on that. I was on the line with Brad Isbister and Tony Samalainen. Uh, I remember Tony went to the net, uh, took away their D, and I remember I had a, a kind of a gimme goal. It wasn't the end-to-end Full drag through the legs, top shelf ball that you picture when you're a young kid. But it was an open net kind of backdoor type go off a rebound. But uh, you know, they all count, kind of thing. That's right. It's not how many you, how you did, it's just how many, right? So you got it in. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a memory that you know that, that I'll share with me for the rest of my life. And uh, and uh, we have it on tape, and I have pictures of it. And obviously, I have the plaque and the puck from Edmonton. So 
it was obviously the biggest highlight of my career. And one of the reasons I bring it up, Peter, is playing as hockey as long as you did, you've probably seen a lot of really skilled, talented players who never made it over that extra level. From In your experience, what is the difference between some players who maybe don't have as much talent as others, but they end up making it? You know what? A lot of it is opportunity, being in the right spot in the right time. Uh, there's a lot of really good hockey players that, you know, get to the junior or the college level and, and, you know, they can't adjust from being home alone. Or they get to the pro level and, and they're just in the wrong system or in the wrong coach that maybe doesn't believe in them and doesn't give them the opportunity, right? And, and confidence is everything in this game and and if you're not given the opportunity to showcase what you could do, you know, you're not going to be very successful. So I think a lot of kids, you know, the talent level is, is, is roughly the same. It's just a matter of, of getting that opportunity to do it. Do you end up counseling some of your young kids who are thinking they're going to play junior college hockey and explain to them the realities of, of hockey at an elite level, the next level, what they have to deal with? You know what I do? I get a lot of calls from the parents, right? It's, it's more majority from the parents that, obviously are, are coming through it for the first time and, and now we're getting at the stage where next year in minor midgets, uh, you know, they're OHL draft eligible. They kind of, kind of decide between the NCAA and junior route. Listen, I, I always, I, I tried being as open and honest as I can with all the parents and obviously every kid is molded differently. Some are more prototypical junior A OHL type kids. Some are more, you know, on the smaller skilled side that uh, you know, go to the, the NCAA route. So it's all, I, I do talk to them about their kids' skill sets. Obviously, their, their, uh, their education, their academics play a big part, especially if they're going to go to the NCAA route. And I do do a lot of counseling in terms of what would be best for their kids. All right on. Uh, Peter, as you guys wrap up the regular season, what's ahead for the postseason and some of the championship tournaments you guys are hopefully going to be going into? Well, we're, uh, we got three games left right now. We're, we're battling for a top three position. I think we're, Two or three points out of first, um, and, and we got a big game. Uh, we're tied with the, the second place team on Sunday afternoon, JRC, and uh, that's a big one for us. We could uh, be in sole possession of second place, which would be huge for us. Uh, immediately after that, we got the GTHL playoffs, which follow, and then um, then the season would have commenced uh, after the playoffs are done. So we're looking to have a good playoff run here and push, and see how far we can go here. Peter Sarno of the Vaughn Kings Bantam team. Continuous success. Great work with these young men and uh, all the best and good luck in the postseason. Thanks, Jim. Appreciate the time. Thank you. Take care. An update now on the Canada Strong campaign. This is the fundraiser launched by Mohamed Faki, president of Paramount Fine Foods, to collect funds for the families of the victims of Ukraine International Flight 752. The aircraft was shot down by Iranian missiles January 8th, killing all 176 people on board, including 57 Canadians. Mohammed, thank you for joining us again on the feed. So let's talk about Canada Strong. Can you give us an update on how much money has been raised so far and its very important funding as well? No, thank you very much for having me. I love being on 105.9, and thank you so much for all of you at 105.9 for supporting this cause and continue spreading the word. So, yeah, it's very important to know and uh, that uh, early this week, uh, the government of Canada, federal government, has announced to match every dollar that we raise at Canada Strong. So that gives us a big reason to ask people to hopefully donate more and more so we can reach our goal. And uh, with that match, we can possibly uh, raise $1.5 million, and the government will pay another $1.5 million. So we can do so much for these families 
and that they're faced with a tragedy and we should make sure as Canadians to come together and take a little bit away some of the issues that they possibly are and the expenses that they're going to be faced with immediately as soon as the victims start landing in Canada. It also keeps the spotlight on the families who have been through so much and still have so much ahead of them. You know, there are a lot of things going on around the world right now that sometimes move the focus away and we want to bring it back. So let's talk about what you anticipate the funds will help them with. Well, I mean, uh, we just, uh, as I said uh, earlier this week, uh, we're focused first on the first expenses, uh, which is the expenses of the family when they land here, their funeral, and a lot of other things, legal uh, funds that they need to really uh, sort out their legal issues, their wills, uh, access to the bank account of the fathers and mothers and brothers uh, that they lost. So that's the first tier. The second will be immediately for education for children that lost their parents and their family member and the breadwinner in the family. So it's very important that we provide them with education. Uh, kids like Ryan, uh, a lot of other examples, uh, people will worry about their education. And I do personally worry about it. They have the same age of my children. And I have to tell you, uh, around the five days ago, I was in a memorial and the father was saying a speech about his family and, uh, and he said that his uh, daughter and granddaughter were on the plane and they called him from the airport of Tehran telling him that they bought him something. And his granddaughter told him, I can't wait to just give you a big hug as soon as I land. Mm. And he didn't, he said that I didn't realize that was my last time I hear her voice. And he actually fell off the stage crying. Half of the room was crying on the way out of that memorial. I gave him a hug. He looked in my eyes and he said, but promise me you'll do everything you can for us. I can tell you I didn't sleep since that day. I think about that word, and I had to say, yes, of course I promise you. And I woke up the second morning, and I decided I'm going to pester every single person that I know so that we can help the victims and their family members because that daughter of his and granddaughter of his could have been my friend, my sister, and that granddaughter of his could have been my son or my daughter or any one of our, our daughters or sons. So, yes, the world has a lot of things going on. And a lot of people think that's a complex situation, but it's not. We need to be focused on our Canadians and our Canadian victim and to do the Canadian thing. What I learned and why I came to Canada 20-some years ago is because I wanted to be part of the Canadian thing to do. And the Canadian thing to do is for us to come together in times like this. And that father put, put me under that promise, makes me going to call every single one, ask you to continue, please, helping me to spread the word, and donate, donate, donate. And for the people who can donate, they for sure can use their voice to spread the word because there is nothing we can do to that father to bring back his daughter and granddaughter. But we definitely could be someone that stood beside him, made him feel not alone, and made him feel Canada's embrace, all of us. The money you're raising is priceless, if you will. Uh, you're hoping to uh, put together 1.5 million, and the government will uh, will match that. How close are you at this point, Mohammed? We're at $635,000, so uh, we're far. But, you know, every penny counts. I want to thank everyone that donated even $1 or 50000 We've seen a lot of corporates 
corporation that came forward, but we've seen that we could have much more to come. So I hope people not confuse this as a complex. If anybody's expecting a foreign government to pay fast, we all know it's going to take years and years. And I think we should not be waiting until someone else pay. We should actually come together, all of us, and just hit the number one and a half while the government is ready to match. Yeah. By February 23rd, we only have till February 23rd to gather that money. And uh, hopefully we can help these victims. I really want to thank the federal government for coming forward with this match. They Usually they don't. So that came really handy for the victims and for their families. And hopefully that will get everyone in Canada to say, well, now we can really get use of that match and help those victims more and more. So every $100 I donate will become $200 to someone's pocket that they needed the most. United We Stand, Canada Strong. I cannot thank you enough for what you're doing and the continual energy that you're putting toward this. And we hope that our treasured and valued listeners are now reaching into their pockets and will donate. Could you just let us know where people go to get more information or to make a donation, Mohammed? TorontoFoundation.ca, hashtag Canada Strong. Please donate and spread the word because we definitely would expect if it happened to us that we want our family members to feel Canada's embrace and everyone that's coming with them, standing beside them, and not leaving them alone. Beautifully put. I know we will speak again before the February 23rd deadline at least once or twice, and I thank you for taking the time to be with us on the feed. Thank you so much for doing this and continue spreading the word. I keep seeing your tweet. Thank you, thank you, thank you for what you do. We need to do that, all of us together. We all are on social media for good reasons, for happy reason, but this is, I think, there is a positivity in this. When Canadians all come together behind one cause, we can help other Canadians. Thank you so much, everyone, for doing it. Well, that's our show for this week. If you missed any part of the feed or have a story idea or a community event to share, head to our website, 1059theregion.com. I'm Ann Romer, and thank you for being with us.